Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number eight, the book of Amos, chapter five. Well, we are about halfway through the book of Amos, and surprisingly, if there is an overriding theme to Amos's prophecy at this point, it has to be the matter of social injustice. Now, I want to pause for a few minutes to highlight this, because it can be so easily overlooked due to our faith's tendency to over-spiritualize things rather than facing the tangible realities that we all face in this world. In a most famous story in the, the New Testament, we read this in Matthew 26, verses 7 through 11. A woman who had an alabaster jar filled with very expensive perfume approached Yeshua while he was eating and began pouring it on his head. And when the Talmudim saw it, they became very angry. And why this waste, they asked. This could have been sold for a lot of money and given to the poor. But Yeshua, aware of what was going on, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The poor you will always have with you. You know, if Jesus were to be interviewed by the local media in the West today, he'd be labeled as insensitive and uncaring about the poor for saying such a thing, wouldn't he? You know, what he said is that no matter under what circumstance, no matter under which type of human government, no matter in what era of history, there will always be a social order in which there will be the haves and the have-nots. There will always be the well-to-do, and therefore there will always be the lowly and the poor. This is just a fact. This is a fact, partly because we live in a universe of opposites. But it is also largely because fallen humanity does not live by God's system and instead by our own base instincts. Israel should have been somewhat different as God's elect. Not in the fact that there would still be rich and poor, just like everywhere else, but rather that the government and the rich would make sure that the poorer of their society were treated fairly, morally, and with equal justice. Therefore, over and over in the Bible, we find God's thoughts and His commands that reflect His, His deep concern for the poor and His love for them. Like in Psalm 14:6, you may mock the plans of the poor, but their refuge is Adonai. Psalm 140, verse 13, I know that Adonai gives justice to the poor and maintains the rights of the needy. Yehovah, speaking through Isaiah promises this about the coming Messiah, in, uh, starting at uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. But a branch will emerge from the trunk of Yeshai, Jesse, a root will grow from his roots, a shoot will grow from his roots. The spirit of Adonai will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, 
the spirit of knowledge and fearing Adonai, he will be inspired by fearing Adonai. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but he will judge the impoverished justly. He will decide for the humble of the land. He will strike the land with a rod from his mouth and slay the wicked with a breath from his lips. Justice will be the belt around his waist, faithfulness the sash around his hips. I could give you dozens more examples of scriptures on this subject. The point is, social justice is at the very center of God's concern for mankind. And it is reflected in the direct meaning of His fundamental commandment to love your neighbor. And especially with Israel, there was a sense that their poor may have been of even greater concern for God than for the rich, whom He loved equally as much, but whose needs for the most basic necessities of life were never in doubt. Now, as for the minor prophets, none spoke with more passion and inspiration on behalf of the poor and needy than Amos. Yet none also spoke so eloquently or severely against the indifferent, decadent, morally defunct, elite wealthy as Amos. Not because the wealthy were wealthy, nor because wealth was a bad thing, but rather because they didn't use a goodly portion of their wealth to show compassion for the most vulnerable of Israelite society. Recall this devastating indictment against the rich of Israel from Amos chapter 2. There, starting in verse 6, it says, Here's what Adonai says for Israel's three crimes, no four. I will not reverse it, because they sell the upright for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Grinding the heads of the poor in the dust, pushing the lowly out of the way, father and son sleep with the same girl, profaning my holy name, lying down beside my uh, any altar, any altar on clothes taken in pledge, drinking wine in the house of their God, bought with the fines they imposed. So, what was happening to the enormous population of the poverty-stricken in Ephraim Israel? The elites and the leadership were using their citizens' impoverished condition to gain more personal power and wealth. Quite literally, the rich were oppressing the poor and thinking of their own material gains as God's blessing upon them. Amos says that their wealth is about to be confiscated because God Himself, who has repeatedly said, he will personally be the defender of the poor, is about to exact heavenly justice upon the unjust. Now, sadly, the poor will suffer. They're going to suffer just as well, not so much as collateral damage to, judge, to God judging the wealthy, but because they are said to deserve it due to their perverted worship practices.
Now, what we also see in Amos is a history of how God's shameful social injustices developed over time. The path of rebellion against God's ways was always a reality in Israel. The largest factor in this rebellion was said to be the leadership, civil and religious. Therefore, God would punish Israel's leaders the most severely, and as is noticed by even a casual observer, populations of people only rarely act in a concerted fashion unless they are led to do so. And the development of a common national cultural mindset or ethos does not occur randomly. It doesn't occur by accident. It is always in response to the influence of the leadership. The citizens of authoritarian societies have their national ethos forced upon them according to the whims of tyrant. While in more democratic societies it happens according to their politicians' desires to gauge the wants of the people and then to give them some of what they want in exchange for being put into power to accomplish whatever is their actual personal agenda. In the end, the result is essentially the same injustice for the poor. Well, Amos chapter 5 then takes us to the consequences for all of this social injustice and for Israel's rebellion and apostasy. The chapter opens with what can only be called a lament for the seriously fallen Ephraim Israel. Well, let's read Amos chapter 5 together. Open up your Bibles and we're going to read Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> Hear this word that I take up against you and lament, house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will not rise again. She lies abandoned on her own soil with no one to lift her up. For thus says Adonai Elohim, the city from which a thousand marched will be left with a hundred, and the one from which a hundred marched will be left with ten from the house of Israel. For here is what Adonai says to the house of Israel, If you seek me, you will survive. But don't seek Bethel, or enter Gilgal, or pass on to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel will come to nothing. If you seek Adonai, you will survive. Otherwise, he will break out against the house of Yosef, of Joseph, like fire, devouring Bethel, with no one to quench the flames. You who turn justice to bitter wormwood and throw righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who brings death-like shadows over the morning, who darkens the day into night, who calls for the water in the sea, and with it floods the earth. Adonai is his name. He flashes destruction on the strong, so that destruction overcomes the fortress. They hate anyone promoting justice at the city gate. They detest anyone who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and extort from them levies of grain, although you have built houses of cut stone, you will not live in them. 
And though you have planted pleasant vineyards, you'll not drink their wine. For I know how numerous are your crimes and how outrageous your sins, bullying the innocent, extorting ransoms, pushing the poor aside at the gate. At times like these a prudent person stays silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good, not evil, so that you will survive. Then Adonai Oheah uh, Zebaot will be with you, as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, uphold justice at the gate. Maybe Adonai Elohe uh, Zevaot will take pity on the survivors of Joseph. Therefore says Adonai Elohe Zevaot, Adonai in all public squares there will be lamentation. In all the streets they will cry, Oh no! And they will summon farmers to mourn and professional mourners to wail. And there will be wailing in every vineyard, for I will pass. Um, uh, I will pass through among you, says Adonai. Oh, woe to you who want the day of Adonai. Why do you want it, this day of Adonai? It's darkness, not light. As if someone were to run from a lion just to meet, be, be uh, met by a bear. As if he entered a house, put his hand on the wall just to be bitten by a snake. Won't the day of Adonai be darkness and not light, completely dark, with no brightness at all? I hate, I utterly loathe your festivals. I take no pleasure in your solemn assemblies. If you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'll not accept them, nor will I consider the peace offerings of your stall-fed cattle. Spare me the noise of your songs. I don't want to hear the strumming of your lutes. Instead, let justice well up like water, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings in the desert, forty years, house of Israel? No, but now you will bear Sikut as your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves, as I exile you beyond Damasek, beyond Damascus says Adonai Elohe Sebaot, that is his name. You know, Bible scholars sometimes approach Bible books and chapters by dividing them into literary units eh, for the sake of study, nothing else. That is, a literary unit is some verses strung together that form a train of thought on a subject. Now the first 17 verses of chapter 5 are clearly such a unit. Douglas Stewart and his thoughts on this section of Amos further subdivides this literary unit into five parts. In verse 1, that is a typical, traditional, prophetic, formal summons for Israel to hear and take heed to what Jehovah is about to say, is first, it's a description for the, of, the, of the coming catastrophe that is followed second by a call for Israel to react, and then third, it's, there's a direct address to the people of the now fallen Israel, fourth, followed by another call to react, and then finally, fifth, a summons for the nation of Israel to mourn 
Israel is to mourn because of the coming inevitable tragedy that they brought upon themselves. Verse 1 then speaks of what already is decided as far as God's concerned. Therefore, since the subject is the death of Israel as a nation, then the only appropriate thing is for a period of mourning to begin. The first 17 verses are given to us in the form of a funeral dirge sung over the corpse of Ephraim Israel. Well, verse 2 speaks of Israel as the virgin or as the, the maiden. Now recall that biblically speaking, a virgin is merely the term used for an unmarried girl. Whereas in the West, we tend to think of the term virgin mostly in the sexual sense of a person yet to have had sexual experience with someone of the opposite sex. Biblically, while that is certainly it's understood as part of that, the idea is more that a girl is still living under her father's roof because she has yet to marry and have birth children. So her purpose in life has yet to be fulfilled. She's yet to be fruitful and multiply. Israel, as a metaphorical virgin in the flower of her life, is going to be prematurely cut off from her natural and expected destiny. And in the form of government and order of society that she now exists, she will never rise again. Her path forward is forever changed. And when we read the term fallen, like fallen Israel, it is really shorthand for fallen in battle. That is, mortally wounded, left for dead. Thus, the built-in implication is that Israel's fate is to lose a military battle for their territory. Even worse, this loss will not come in a battle to expand Israel's territorial holdings, but rather it's going to come in defense of their own land, in humiliating defeat, certainly not valor. Israel is, as of now, years before those invaders are going to arrive, powerless to alter the course of her future. Including the words, with none to lift her up, what that means is there's no hope for rescue, not even help from Israel's God. Now verse 3 is we, what we might label as a, a, a curse of decimation. See, this offers me yet another opportunity to reinforce the reality that everything that God is doing against Israel is based upon the Law of Moses. Okay, Deuteronomy 28 promises this, and starting in verse 62, You will be left few in number, whereas you were once as numerous as the stars in the sky, because you did not pay attention to the voice of Adonai your God. Thus it will come about that just as once Adonai took joy in seeking to do you good and increasing your numbers, so now Adonai will take joy in causing you to perish and being destroyed. Therefore, verse 3 shows that in every institution of Israel, every, the human loss will be in the 90% range. 90%. 
of the cities and villages, only a remnant, about 10%, will remain. Of an army of a thousand, we're told, a hundred will survive. Out of an army of a hundred, only ten will survive. What we need to notice is that all that Israel thought would make them immune from such a possible disaster, their God, their army, will not. Not going to work. Israel's deceived. It has a false sense of security. But even so, verse 4 offers a ray of hope. This begins the second subunit of this lament for Israel that Stuart calls a call to react. What ought to be Israel's reaction to learning about what's going to happen to them and why? Well, it ought to be to change. To change by realizing their predicament, preparing for what lies ahead. You know, preparation for a disaster is an admission we don't control everything. Preparation comes from a proper humility. God says that the first step in that preparation process is to seek me. Step one. Those who will seek Him will have a greater chance of survival. In other words, Israel's salvation is conditional on seeking God. And although offered, but it's not going to be accepted, should enough individuals within the nation of Ephraim Israel repent and seek God, then the nation of Israel can still be saved. But the point here is not that Israel is going to take this invitation for deliverance and act upon it. They won't. God foreknows it. It's that a principle and a God pattern is reaffirmed. It is that while God's decision is open to some degree of change, it's always, 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 I get enough of those in? It is always dependent upon His people realizing and admitting they're wrong, and then changing to what's right. There is no option A and B. I'm going to say it again. Salvation has always been conditional. Of course. Now Israel was already a redeemed people. It had been so since God rescued them from Egypt, but soon thereafter they began their rebellion. And up and down swings, their rebellion had been continuous. A section of Israel had crossed a line in the sand, and God's wrath would be unleashed upon them for their covenant violation. Israel went from redeemed to rebel, and now they had a second chance for redemption, if they took hold of it. If they didn't, then their fate would be just as though they had never at one time been redeemed. Now let me assure you that even with the advent and the sacrifice of Yeshua on the cross, 
cross, nothing has changed. So we read in James 1, 22 through 25, Don't deceive yourselves by only hearing what the Word says, but do it. For whoever hears the Word, but doesn't do so, doesn't do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror, who looks at himself, and he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But if a person looks closely into the perfect Torah, which gives freedom, and continues, becoming not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work it requires, then he will be blessed in what he does. Moving on to James 5, 19-20, My brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth, and someone causes him to return, you should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wrong, from his wandering path will save him from death and will cover many sins. And I'm going to preach to you for a minute. You know, I have railed before about this false church doctrine among some denominations, not all, of it's called usually once saved, always saved. This is a classically unscriptural doctrine and is instead the epitome of man made doctrine. In fact, it is in a futile defense of this untenable doctrine that the church has, over the centuries, removed, reinserted, then removed and put back again the entire book of James from the New Testament. Only since the early 1800s has most Bibles reinserted it. Today, the basic defense for the once saved, always saved proponents against what, against what James says is that it is merely a hypothetical statement that's impossible to happen in reality. That sound like God to you? It's just an unneeded warning. If this wasn't such a dangerous doctrine, I guess I'd not be so intent on shining a light on it. The idea that once we say the sinner's prayer, that we become permanent members of the kingdom regardless of what we do or believe afterwards defies everything said to the contrary in the whole of the Bible. Salvation is indeed conditional. It's conditional on us maintaining that salvation by continuing our devotion to God. And that includes sincerely intending to obey His commandments. Disobedience is to His commandments has a very biblical name to it. What's it called? Sin. That too has not changed. It is one thing to acknowledge God's commandments as valid and relevant to us, and then fail occasionally in following them. It's quite another to declare that His commands no longer matter, or perhaps no longer even exist for us. So we're just kind of free to behave however we like or make new rules to replace the former ones. Or even that although we at one time believed, however we no longer do, well that doesn't matter. We believed if only but for a day, 
our salvation remains guaranteed. This is not true. This is not true. And I fear millions who feel safe and secure are going to find out a different eternal destiny that what they've been told awaits them. What we're reading in Amos is precisely what I'm talking about. Israel knew they had been redeemed at one point in their past, and so we're just certain. Well, they could rely on that of that one event regardless of their current behavior or their deceived disregard for obeying God's commandments. Today's church more resembles Amos's Ephraim Israel than it does the first century Jesus movement among the Jewish people. And you know what, folks? Reform is desperately needed. Well, verse 5 tells Israel that if they truly desire to seek God, they should not seek him in Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba. Those three places are the three most visited sanctuaries used by the northern kingdom of Ephraim. In fact, they are to avoid those places. It's not that of themselves these were inherently evil or pagan places. So what's the problem here? It is that the leadership of Ephraim Israel had established those locations as worship centers based upon the hybridized religion that they had now fashioned for themselves. Now, I'm sure these places seemed on the surface perfectly legitimate to the Ephraim Israelites. All were steeped in happenings from the Hebrews' ancient historical past. Bethel was named by the patriarch Jacob, and it was a legitimate holy site. But Jeroboam turned Bethel into a perverted worship center as a substitute for going to the temple in Jerusalem. Gilgal was the first place Israel encamped upon crossing the Jordan to enter Canaan. It was where Joshua had that generation in camp that would be the first to occupy the Promised Land. It was where a mass circumcision ceremony took place. Beersheba is associated primarily, of course, with Isaac and then his father Abraham. By Amos' time, all three of those locations had been co-opted and now represented rebellion against the covenant of Moses. Now, you know, it might be a little bit hard for us to grasp just what the people of Ephraim Israel thought when Amos told them that they were no longer to go to these places to worship. I mean, the lesson being taught is that seeking God is not the same as seeking their traditional sanctuaries. No doubt such an instruction was confusing, had to be most troubling. I'm going to put it in modern terms. If Amos were standing before us, he would say that seeking God is not the same thing as attending church or synagogue. That's what he'd say. The many ritual observances at the various cult sites were not what Israel was supposed to depend upon for their righteousness. Rather, Amos said they were to relinquish those observances that had up to now actually blocked their return to God. 
In fact, Bethel and Gilgal were soon to disappear from the pages of history. When God threatens to break out against the house of Joseph, this is speaking about the two tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And together they held the most territory in the Promised Land, and, and both were located in the Northern Kingdom. So the house of Joseph, Ephraim, Israel, and the Northern Kingdom, these were all synonymous terms. Bethel would be destroyed along with the Northern Kingdom. Now Amos continues in verse 7, which begins the next subsection that is a direct address to the people of fallen Israel, and brings social injustice back into the focus as the chief characteristic and the reason for the punishment of the fallen house of Joseph. The entire concept of justice, as overseen by Israel's appointed judges, has been lost. They have taken this beautiful moral thing of justice and turned it into something bitter. When wormwood comes into contact with water, it makes the taste so bitter it is undrinkable. So that's the metaphor being used here. The result of injustice is that the intended outcome of godly justice as righteousness is destroyed. Well, verse 8 has been judged by many Bible scholars as a fragment of an ancient hymn to Jehovah from before the time of Job. And Amos seems to have known it and inserted it in here. It is even suggested that Amos actually sang this portion of his message to his audience. Now, while that might sound strange to us, it would have seemed quite appropriate for his era. This hymn confirms the power and the majesty of Israel's God. Now, the Pleiades and Orion are two well-known constellations of stars, both of which Amos says that God made. Now, because the placement in the sky of the Pleiades and Orion have been used for centuries to indicate the change of the summer, uh, rather of the winter and the summer seasons, then for the ancient Israelites, it means that God is the one who controls seasons and sets signs in the sky. Now, next, the hymn credits God with changing day to night and night to day. The reference to water and to the seas is essentially about floods and rainfall, which God also controls. So in verse 9, God not only controls the sky and nature, He is also the one who determines the direction and the fate of all nations on earth. He can determine such fate using destructive power that can, at His will, include flattening the vaunted fortifications of nations that they think are impregnable. Well, verse 10 picks up again with the issue of social justice. The they that's here is referring to Israel's leaders. It is they who don't want justice. They have no interest in truth. When Amos speaks of justice at the gate, it's referring to the standard ancient practice 
of holding court at some designated meeting area just inside the city walls, usually at the entry gate. The idea was that the court was open and public for all to witness. I want to take just a moment to talk about the concept of truth with you. <clears throat> you know, in modern times, the term truth is, I think, mostly misused. We tend to mix together or think as synonymous the terms fact and truth. And while they're used that way in Western society, from a biblical perspective, fact and truth are quite different things. Speaking objectively, I also think that in this 21st century world that is rapidly evolving to a state of nearly universal amorality, equating fact with truth is but a manifestation of a lack of concern for morality. What is amorality? The common definition of it is an absence of and indifference towards a disregard for or an incapacity for morality. Here's what I'm getting at. From God's standpoint, truth express, expresses the nature of His moral code. That's truth. Therefore, for anyone to declare something as truth that is outside of or in disagreement with God's moral code, it cannot be truth. Truth operates similarly to wisdom. The Bible explains that wisdom's source is heaven. In fact, wisdom is literally spoken of in the Bible as a living divine entity. In the same way that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Word, etc., these are all living divine entities. So, from a standard Christian perspective, wisdom is as much God as is those other divine entities that Christian Trinity doctrines refer to as persons of God. If we follow that same line of vocabulary, thinking, logic, then truth is also the manifestation of a living divine entity whose source can only be heaven, something coming from outside the sphere of the finite, and whose substance can only be God. Fact, on the other hand, comes from within this finite, four-dimensional universe, the physical world in which we all live. It's an expression of the believed and actual existence, or perhaps the actual current state of a physical object, or as something existing or happening in reality, whether it's tangible or not. For instance, it's a fact of nature the rain comes from clouds. It's a fact that human speech is the movement of airwaves. It's a fact of human biology that there are two sexes, male and female, each with distinguishing characteristics. 
It's a fact of history that Adolf Hitler was a dictator of Germany that led the world into war. Fact, generally speaking, has no moral element to it. It's just amoral in its substance. Facts can be proved to be accurate or inaccurate or believed at one time to be accurate, only later to be proved inaccurate. That the earth is flat, that was a fact, according to scholars and clergy of the 15th century and earlier. Later this was proved to be inaccurate. So the shape of the earth is now factually stated as being round. And since the shape of the earth is not a moral issue, then whatever the claim of its shape might be, it ought to be spoken of in terms of fact, not truth. Truth, however, is never wrong, and it never changes. So to be clear, in Amos 5 verse 10, the issue is not about justice being administered improperly according to judges who are not interested in collecting the correct facts of the case. Rather it is that Israel's judges were not interested in proper morality. They were not interested in truth as the basis for rendering a verdict. There's only one place to look for God's written code of morality, His definition of morality, His definition of truth, and that's His moral code that's called the Law of Moses. And Amos, as we see God judging pagan nations based upon God's laws, then we learn that there's only one moral code for all humanity, not one for Israel and another one for everybody else. This then means there's only one truth. All else is falsehood. If one is not interested in truth, well, righteousness just falls to the ground. Bottom line, from God's perspective, no interest in the Law of Moses as mankind's guide to justice equals no interest in truth. When verse 11 begins with, therefore, it means that a consequence or an outcome is about to be announced. As consequence, as the outcome for the wealthy oppressing the poor and unjustly taking away from them so-called taxes, on their field crops to which they are not entitled, according to the Torah standards, the wonderful mansions that the rich built for themselves, the money for which came from those taxes, shall be for naught, as they don't get to live in them. This is called a futility curse. A futility curse describes a reversal, an opposite outcome of a person's expectations. Again, all of these crimes or punishments are taken directly as the prescribed punishments for the prescribed crimes in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 28.15. But if you refuse to pay attention to what Adonai your God says, and do not observe and obey all of His mitzvot, His commandments, and His regulations which I am giving you today, then all the following curses will be yours in abundance, 
And then a few verses later, in a listing of curses, we find in verse 30, you will be engaged to a woman, but another man will marry her. You will build a house, but not get to live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but not get to eat its fruit. So all of a person's hard work and gains will be brought to nothing by God for violating His laws and principles in order to have made those material gains. Here in chapter 5, verse 11, the wealthy house builders and vineyard owners will face complete frustration, all because of their immoral treatment of the poor. They not only won't get to live in their own homes, they won't get to enjoy the wine that comes from their own vineyards. So now, just as Ephraim Israel's elite have become wealthy at the expense of others, so others will become rich at their expense. Now verse 12 says, says then God says that He's going to be quite aware of the wealthy's numerous crimes, meaning violations of God's morality code, the Law of Moses. God sees as they bully people who, unlike themselves, are actually innocent of crimes. He watches as they extort and take from the helpless. So, however it is that these Israelites believed that perhaps they could do these things in secret, such that Jehovah would never see it or care, they are learning that nothing can be hidden from His sight. He has seen and remembered every sin, every shameful act they have committed. Now it's time to pay the piper for it. The next verse says, At times like these a prudent person stays silent, for it's an evil time. Now you know, in truth, exactly what this is talking about is uncertain. So uncertain, in fact, that nearly unanimously Bible scholars see this as a gloss or more likely just as a scribal mistake that either was written down wrong, so we actually have no idea what the intended point was, or, and I think much more likely, a later editor accidentally dropped this verse from somewhere else into this spot. Happens. Now, I confess I have no better insight on this than anybody else, but this verse does seem to interrupt the flow of the passage so strangely, I just don't think it can belong here. So we'll just move on to verse 14. Seek good and not evil, so that you will survive. God again offers the prospect of life when so far the people have only been guaranteed death. Again, the principle of salvation and deliverance are expressed as purely conditional based upon a person straightening up and flying right or not. The first time God told the people, that the option of seeking Him to avoid death included how not to go about seeking Him. In other words, by not 
ever going again to those illegal cult centers of Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Now he speaks about seeking him in terms of what to do. Essentially, God defines seeking him as living a moral and ethical life. I want to say again, I want to say this again in a different way. What we do, our deeds, our choice of lifestyle, whose values and morals we go by, the way in which we practice our faith, our attitude towards the poor, this is what it means to seek God. Seeking God doesn't mean to have this super warm feeling in our hearts for Him. Seeking God doesn't mean doing all kinds of religious rituals or walking through the doors of our church or synagogue at every opportunity. It means to seek His ways and then to do them. Now, lest I forget mentioning the critical act of prayer. And prayer is certainly an important part of seeking God. Prayer ought to be the beginning act of seeking that leads to doing, not prayer as a substitute for doing. Seeking God indeed has a spiritual element to it. But according to Amos, it more amounts to the proper divine motivation for what we do, do. So for the prophet, seeking involves our total de dedication to determining the good and then doing it. And here this is speaking almost entirely about human-to-human -human relationships, loving your neighbor. That can only happen if one follows God's moral code with the right heart attitude. The result of seeking God in this way is expressed in the second half of this verse. Then Jehovah God of hosts will be with you as you say He is. <clears throat> now for the Israelites at this time in history, this expressed thought is very nearly a catchphrase. God with us is grounded in the idea of their national God providing well-being, prosperity, and victory in battle. If Jehovah is with Israel, then good things happen. If He's not, the opposite occurs. Because Ephraim Israel is still at peace, because Ephraim Israel is still quite prosperous at the time of Amos' prophecy, then they say it can only be because God is with us. They're wrong. They're wrong. And they're just a few years away from finding out in living color just how wrong they have been in such an assumption. An assumption that Amos is taking apart piece by piece. See, we must never let appearances fool us. Much of the modern Western world is so very prosperous. And in many Western churches and in the minds of the congregation members, this prosperity is the proof that God must be with us. I personally find it quite hard to accept 
that when we see the Western world, often with the agreement of the church, frantically attempting to reverse nearly every moral standard we have had, that we've lived by up till now, denouncing traditional moral standards that in times past we've had no compunction as a, natural cult, as a national culture about confessing that our morals and ethics are biblically based, although sometimes they probably weren't. Goodness, even the USA Supreme Court building has an etching of Moses and the law on its impressive entry just to convey that principle. Now, if my assessment is even partially correct, and we have become like Ephraim Israel as a, a culture, then we need to heed Amos's message. Acknowledge our situation. Repent. Prepare. Prepare first by seeking God, meaning to change our behavior, and prepare by taking practical measures to better assure the basic needs of everyday life can be met for that moment when shortages and catastrophes strike us unexpectedly, which they surely will. And if nobody's figured that out yet, I do not know where you have been living. God began in verse 14 to show His worshipers what to do, how to prepare, and it continues into verse 15. And it begins with conscious, tangible choices to embrace what God calls good and to shun what God calls evil. It is only through that means that the Lord will restore the blessings of the covenant terms. One more time, it's all about the covenant God worshipers have with Jehovah. We're going to be judged according to it. And God is going to treat us accordingly. Shalom in Paul puts it in this way. Conversely, concern and devotion to good is not sufficient. They, Israel, must sincerely love good. To love good is then practically interpreted to mean a way of life that is counter to their present manner of behavior. Repentance in and of itself, folks, is not magical. Our repentance cannot force God to forgive us or to forego discipline upon us. Mercy, well, that's God's and God's alone to determine. Paul, who is using the Torah as his guide, says this in Romans 9, starting at verse 14. So are we to say it is unjust for God to do this? Heaven forbid. For to Moses he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will pity whom I pity. Thus it doesn't depend on human desires or efforts, but on God who has mercy. In every case, whether in Israel's or in ours, our ultimate destiny is dependent upon God's response to our cry for mercy. No amount of ritual, no amount of prayer or declaration can coerce God 
to forgive. Verses 16 and 17 now conclude this literary unit, which is a call to mourn. Jehovah's wrath means destruction and death for Ephraim Israel. Everywhere within the northern kingdom, at every level of a society, all will suffer. Even the vineyards that are traditionally a place of joy will join in the lament. When God says through Amos the final words of verse 17, I will pass through among you, it is meant to recall this same God decimating the Egyptians. Recall Exodus 12, 12. For that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and animals, and I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. I am Adonai. Okay? We'll end it and take it up at verse 18 next time.